And when you're positive about things, you are much more likely to engender trust. My name is Meryl Dubro, CEO of Mark Research. I'm a 35-year veteran of the research and insights community and the host of our podcast, On The Mark. On The Mark is focusing on executives and thought leaders in the world, sharing their insights, strategies, and personal experiences. I promise this podcast will be filled with tough, pointed questions with real, insightful, and emotional answers. Today's guest is my good buddy, Michael Maslansky, CEO of Maslansky & Partners. Michael, welcome to the On The Mark podcast. Meryl, I am thrilled to be here, and you've set the bar pretty high about the answers I have to be. <laughs> well, listen, you know, it's funny because you and I know each other for many, many, many moons, being part of the Omnicom um, community for, for over a decade or 14 years of my life. Um, and I got I to gotta say that, you know, both of us like to talk a little bit. Both of us like to plan. But, but you, as you know, and as the listeners know, this is unscripted, unrehearsed, and uncensored. So you never know what's going to happen because I have a blank piece of paper in front of me. I don't even know what I'm going to say. And I've actually never done a podcast this unscripted before. You know, I'm sure, but we're going to have some fun. So let me ask you a question. I know your history. You go to University of Pennsylvania undergrad. You go to Columbia Law. So you got two checks in the, hey, guys, I'm ridiculously smart column. What the hell do we have in common? Because I'm as dumb as a box of rocks. <laughs> well, I, you know, I think, uh, first of all, it was a lot easier to get into these schools way back when than, than it is now. So I'll, I'll chalk part of the answer up to that. Proceeded to take my law degree, practice law for a couple of years, and then leave the law. So I'm not sure that that helps me at all either at this point. Uh, but, you know, we find, find plenty to complain about together, for sure, if nothing else. <laughs> There you go. So, so you gave up guilty as charged for the insights community. I love it. So let me ask you this. I'm going to make you scratch your head. I want to know, as the listener does, what were your SAT scores combined? I mean, were you one of these guys that I hated like 1530 or were you higher actually? No, I was not higher. I'm trying to remember. I think I was, I don't know. I think I was 1400. Does that sound right? Well, it does, considering, you know, 16 is the highest and, and chances are to get into those schools, you had to be that, that high. So that, that, is, that is awesome. I have so, not been asked that question in a long time. I know. Well, we're off to a good start. Okay. So let me ask this though. In my life, um, I still have a lot to accomplish. And one of the things that I want to accomplish, you've actually done, and that is write a book. So I know that you're the author of Language of Trust, and you know I'm going to probably write, end up writing three books, probably The World According to Merrill with a lot of Merrillisms or something like that. I'm actually doing one, Letters to My Dad, which is just for my kids, that it will only be read by three people, my kids, that's it. Um, but talk a little bit about the, I know the listeners would be really interested in, you know, the process of writing the book, Right. You know, let's start with the motivation behind it and, and maybe even a follow up. How hard is it to do? The motivation was uh, was somewhat existential for us. You know, we as you know, Meryl, we when we joined Omnicom, I had a, a partner and a boss. Uh, and uh, when the earnout with Omnicom ended, he left and I was left with a company that right at the in the middle of the financial crisis at the end of 2008, 2009, and we did not have a reputation that really existed outside of, of my former partner. And so we had to establish uh, some, some really basis for building the business from there. And so I felt like 
uh, writing a book was a good platform to do that. It turned out to be uh, an incredibly helpful platform to do that. And I think it accelerate the, the process of going forward. But, but I definitely felt like I had to do something to, uh, to try and build our, our business's reputation around. You know, the process of writing the book, <laughs> it was, uh, I learned a lot through the process. So first I had a, a client, uh, a group of people at a client, Invesco Consulting, who I had done a lot of work with. And they were also interested in writing a book and agreed to, uh, to help um, help us fund actually a ghostwriter to put a first draft together based on my outline and proposal. First thing I learned is that I will never write a book again with a ghostwriter because I had to rewrite the entire book, at, even though I had put the outline together. And I think, you know, the hardest thing lesson that I learned was that I have a, I have a particular voice that I wanted to communicate with and that as much as I spoke to this writer who was a good writer, who's written tons of books, it's not, not anything about him, but capturing my voice and my style was, it was, it was something only I could do. And so that was, you know, certainly a big lesson. Ended up writing the book from kind of 10 PM to two in the morning over the course of, uh, I think four months, uh, while I had a five-year-old and a three-year-old child who were fortunately asleep at that hour. But, um, uh, but that's what the, you know, the bulk of the process was that being said, I mean, the, the book, the language of trust is at its core it is a summary of the work that I'd been doing for the 10 years or so prior to that. And so the, the research that one might have to do for a book I'd already done and that made it a lot easier. Let me ask you, it's a funny question, but let's go for it. Do you really make any money? doing this? I mean, bestseller. Oh my God, I have a bestseller. And then you'd ask somebody who's like, yeah, I sold like 3000 cop. I mean, is there money to be had in this or not at all? It's just a door opener. So I am, I'm proud to say that, uh, that I've sold 50 plus thousand copies at this point. Oh, okay. Great. Okay. Uh, good. And 3000 is actually the number that was quoted as, to me. I remember as the kind of the point at which the publisher would say it was a decent, uh, it was a decent book, but the the path that that uh, that we took to sell was a combination of direct selling, you know, through Amazon and 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 other uh, online and and physical books bookstores, but also a lot of speaking engagements that I did around it that uh, that where we sold books as well as part of it, and so and it's kind of had a long tail. I mean, the book was now ten years old. Uh, fortunately, I think is as relevant today as it was then, even if the stories are a little dated. Uh, but uh, but the I got uh, the so we got an advance to write the book, and then I got my first check above and beyond the advance. I think nine years after publication. Oh my God! Wow. So so I, it was a good thing I didn't quit my day job. <laughs> so. I mean, obviously, you know, language of trust, I, I assume it's about what words to use that brands can use, politicians can use to instill trust on what they are saying with either consumers or voters. Is that, do, do I kind of have that right or not really? Yes. It's about words, but it's also about the kind of the way of thinking and the strategies for communicating that really help you build trust. So sometimes it is about the specific words that you use. Very often it's about the framing of messaging, the order of messaging, uh, and the way that you approach the whole process of communicating. 
I don't want to make this about politics at all. I don't care who you voted for as long as you voted. It doesn't matter to me. Are you actually sitting there with the missus and the kids and, and, and watching either the debate or a, a commercial come on for one of the candidates and saying, I can't believe they just said that that's the wrong order. I can't believe they use those words. They misuse those words. That's not going to instill trust. I mean, are you doing that stuff when you're home? Oh, not out loud if I want my family to hang out. <laughs> Although I definitely do it probably more than than they would like. Yeah, I mean it's a natural natural reaction to watching communication now and and kind of understand either the intent behind behind why they communicated. I was actually watching some news show not that long ago with my son and uh, I can't remember exactly who it was. It was a, a politician. Oh, it was, a, I think, the, the mayor of El Paso, maybe, who's a Republican who wanted to take action on COVID, uh, but felt like he uh, was being stymied by the, the uh, Republican administration. And every time he was asked whether the President Trump was making it harder for him to control the virus, he would say, well, we're focusing on what we can control. And, and the interviewer would say, but are Donald Trump's policies and statements making it harder for you to do that? He'd say, well, what we were focusing on, and I turned to my son and I said, look, you know, that pivot, when, when you hear somebody not directly answer the question, it's because they've got something that they don't want to answer and they're trying to reframe it. Well, but I would argue and suggest that most politicians don't answer any questions. I mean, if you listen to the debate, they didn't answer any questions. They basically took the question, either reframed it, and then took it down a path quickly that you're like, whoa, what just happened? Did I have an out-of-body experience? Yeah. <laughs> the moderator didn't ask that question. We, we, how did we get on this topic? Right. And, they, and people don't really trust them. And a lot of it is because they don't answer the question. Uh, and so, you know, while that was what that politician was doing in that situation, certainly not something that engenders a lot of trust. I'm going to ask you to give me a number, three, four, or five. Three. Okay. So we do a lot of business meetings. We do a lot, as you do, we do a tremendous amount of presentations. I'm actually presenting, believe it or not, three times tomorrow over five hours. Um, I'm teaching two classes at Michigan State. And I'm the, I'm the keynote on an insights association in the Northwest tomorrow as well. Give me three words that business executives today, teachers, and even maybe insight professionals should be really using during presentations to instill trust. Because you and I believe that people buy from people they trust. So if I want to sell more, if the listeners want to sell more, give me three words or three phrases that they should be using in today's business environment to do that. Okay. The first one is you. Okay. Right? The most important principles of, of credible communication and building trust is to make it personal, make it about the audience. And so you get a lot of people who are trying to establish their credentials, tell you how smart they are, and they talk about themselves instead of connecting their expertise to their audience's situation, challenges, opportunities, et cetera. So you is definitely one. The, the, the second kind of a strategy, I would say, as opposed to a, a specific word is don't use absolutes. There's nothing that is 100%. Nothing is true all the time. Nothing is a lie or is false all of the time. And communicators often try in order to make a big point and say that something is absolutely this way or that way. We believe in kind of a relativist 
worlds. Nothing is nothing is perfect, and so if you acknowledge it, then uh, then you'll be much more effective and actually more credible as a uh, as a communicator. And so the third is again, I'll give a don't don't use jargon. Again, when people are trying to demonstrate their expertise, used to be that you could be really sophisticated in your language, use all kinds of uh, multi-syllabic words and, uh, and sentences and, and acronyms. Uh, and today that just makes people feel like you're actually not an effective communicator because you can't take a complex concept and simplify it. I think I should cancel my speeches tomorrow because my whole life is jargon. <laughs> wow. Okay. Well, that's, that's impressive. That really, really is. And I think that'll help a lot of listeners. I know that'll help. That has helped me for sure. Hey, do me a favor, Michael, talk about to the listeners, give us a 30 second commercial on your company. Could you? Sure. Uh, we are Maslansky and Partners, which is a language strategy company. And the work that we do, which is grounded in research and in insights, helps companies better understand their audience and the obstacles to effectively communicating with them. And so what we do is research and strategy to help them find the right language uh, so, that, uh, um, so that they can be effective. Our tagline is, it's not what you say, it's what they hear. Really, our job is to help clients understand uh, how their audience is going to hear their message so that they can get that message across more effectively. That's great. That's great. So, and I imagine your company, are you in a little bit more demand during your crisis? Uh, yeah, big part of the work that we do is crisis response, but it's it's often the, you know, not the something blew up, let's go figure out how to talk about that explosion for example, as much as it is when uh, when longstanding issues emerge that are going to require a lot of uh, a lot of communication uh, and and kind of empathy and understanding, that's where we get involved most. That's great. And then, how are you? Because I know you mentioned you have two kids. So when you're on the couch and they're not on their video games or iPad or iPhone or FaceTiming or doing whatever with their friends. How do you describe the pandemic, what we're going through? Because this is, you know, this is something that I, I know I never have, have gone through this. And, I'm, and I struggle with how to explain or how to even attack this at times. Yeah, that's a really, it's an interesting question. I'm not sure that I have the, the perfect answer. I think one of, the, one of the guiding principles that my wife and I certainly use is that, is that we have to kind of understand what they're experiencing. And, and just with, with any kind of communication, you have to meet your audience where they are. And so I think every time I talk about it, I acknowledge that it, it sucks. Like there is just no way to, to make it anything other than a a bad situation, at least that's about where we start and say, trying to explain, help them understand why the leader of the country may may have a different point of view than they have about whether it's serious. We're, we're in New York, even though we left Manhattan where we live, we experienced it in, in very kind of clear terms and, and, and saw the damage that it was doing. And so uh, you have to kind of relate to that experience and then try and help see the you know, the positive that either can come out of it or, or what you need to make of it, right? Like this is the reality of our situation. So what do we do about it? Uh, and, and how do we, uh, make the best of the situation that we've got? Which is a nice trait because it's almost the pause, you know, it's so positive. It's, it's glass half full, right, Michael? Yes, absolutely. And actually one of the other things about building trust is that when you're positive. So there are four P's in the language of trust. There's personal, plain spoken, 
plausible and positive. And when you're positive about things, you are much more likely to engender trust, not by being kind of Pollyanna, but just by framing things about what you're for, about about the future, uh, you, you tend to get people to come along for the ride with you when you are negative. It can also be effective, obviously, in, in particularly in the political context, but, uh, but it doesn't engender a whole lot of trust. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, what's been the hardest part of your job in the last seven or eight months? Uh, I think without question, well, there are actually two. Um, one is just the mental health impact on everybody on our team of transitioning from being kind of global travelers to do research to spending your entire day in front of a, a screen. And, you know, how do you separate work and life and feel productive and not not get depressed by all the news that's out there? And then, you know, certainly the hardest moment, especially for us as a communication firm, was in the aftermath of, of George Floyd's murder was kind of understanding how to communicate in that moment for a, for a relatively small firm that had never really needed to make public statements about an issue like that, uh, learning that our team expected uh, me and us to, to really be much more communicative about it was a, it was a really difficult moment and a, and a good learning uh, experience for, for me and for us. Yeah. Well said. Well said. You know, I've told this story a few times. I'll tell it again because I got nothing else to say at this point, which is, um, you know, about a year ago, I did a test visiting my mom. I opened the door for 10 people in Boca Raton, Florida. And I was curious how many people would look at me and say thank you. Right. And how many do you think it was in Boca? Uh, Three. It was three. That's very funny. Look at you. You're on a game show. I don't have any prizes for you, but you just- And that was the number that I picked earlier too. Who knew? Yeah. This is like- uh, uh, You know what? It is. And it's one of my, it's interesting because it's one of my favorite numbers. I, from one to 10, three and seven are two of my favorite numbers. But so three people said it. My gut is if I did the same test today, right? I'll bet you it would be eight or nine. And I think the world is probably a little bit more empathetic than it once was- um, that may be a little bit of a reach, but again, half full type of guy like you are, I want to look at some positives from the pandemic. How do you think you've changed? How has Michael Maslansky changed in the last seven, eight, nine months, do you think? Well, I think, you know, coming back to the issue that, you know, that I raised about the aftermath of, um, of George Floyd's killing and, you know, it, it definitely made me much more curious and interested in understanding racism in ways that I hadn't understood before. So I feel like I am, I've learned a lot and, and, uh, and understand the issue and, and how to approach it much differently than I did before. Um, I think, I think empathy is actually a good, uh, a good description of it. I think that I have a great deal more empathy. Also in going through this uh, election, our business has always been built on kind of the, the understanding or the, the, the belief that you have to empathize with your audience in order to engage. I think seeing the polarization in our country uh, and recognizing that uh, that it, it really is like people watching two different uh, you know ball games, uh, it, that the only way to overcome it is going to be through a, a tremendous amount of empathy, which can often be really uncomfortable for people, uh, and kind of giving people the benefit of the doubt that even if they have views that you really strongly disagree with or even despise, that in in most cases, in my belief, they came by those views kind of honestly, right? It was their 
upbringing. It was the, what they were exposed to. It was the experiences that they've had. And that, you know, if we could all listen a little bit more, be, be more empathetic, be more willing to give people uh, at least the benefit of the doubt, and then also to listen then uh, we'd be much better off as a, as a country and a society. Yeah. Yeah. I think well said on that too. So I'm going to take you back in time. You mentioned earlier, I think around 2008, um, there you are minding your own business and your partner decides for whatever reason to leave, right? The financial, so you lose some revenue because of that. The financial crisis hits, you lose some additional revenue with that. You probably, I think when you called me up, we were both deer in headlights, right? We didn't know what to do. Um, that was a magic moment for you and I. And then did that, but but here's the deal. That was 11, 12 years ago. Um, did, do you think that experience helped you get through what we're facing now with the pandemic? that made you tougher, a better leader? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, it's actually one of the things that I've tried to explain to our team, both our senior team and the rest of our team is that the, you know, we've built up, you know, people of our age and stage have built up a certain resilience to, you know, trauma like this. You know, we, the first business I ran, uh, we raised money the week before the NASDAQ crashed in the dot-com bust. Wow. And I had to go through, you know, restructuring a business, trying to stay alive in the aftermath of that, it really uh, had a big impact on how I, you know, think about business and managing the departure of my partner and the financial crisis. Who he walked away with sixty percent of our revenues, and then you know, the recession took a, another chunk. Like you, you learned not only how to survive through it, but that you do survive, and that you just got to kind of keep keep your legs moving in many ways and you know, be smart about how you work through things. Don't ignore reality. Uh, but also, uh, I think really be optimistic enough to know that even with this, I mean, this has actually been, I don't think anybody would have predicted the, how the economy would react to, to this pandemic in March. Certainly I did not, I thought it was going to be much worse economically. Uh, but it, it, without question, it's given me a, a much stronger foundation from which to operate where it, it did not feel like uh, like it did in the financial crisis, where really it felt like the world was going to come apart and my business was never going to survive. Right. And how are you guys doing this year? You guys having a good year? I am. I'm happy to say that after, you know, March and April, which were uh, no fun <laughs> for any reason, yeah. uh, that the business and the team have really rebounded and, you know, it will not go down in the history books as a marquee year, but at the same time, you know, we're at this point, you know, given where we are, we're, 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 we're hoping like we're getting back to flat, which is to me a huge nice. win nice. Uh, compared with where we were. That's great. So Michael, I got to ask you, I've seen you on TV. I've been minding my own business, having dinner and I look up and there's your mug on TV. So I know you, you know, you've been on all these big time, stations. I'm, I know you've been on Fox and what, NBC, CBS, TB, TBS. Am I, am I right on all those? CNN. I don't know about TBS actually. Okay. CNN. Screw TBS. They're not, they're not good enough for you. <laughs> um, but Fox and NBC and CBS, all the big ones. And now you've been on the, on the mark podcast interviewed by me. Hopefully this has been not the worst interview that you've ever done. <laughs> well, it's going to go at the top of the list. <laughs> I mean, if you sort by recent, 
it will go at the, at the top. <laughs> That's funny. Well, I'm going to end with something fun, which is, hey, who's the most impressive person? Don't give me myself. That's not, uh, that's you being funny. Who's been the most impressive person to interview you on TV? Hmm. Most impressive person to interview me on TV. When I did a couple of uh, segments with Bill O'Reilly, the just uh, like a really, you know, kind of effective interviewer in that he had a clear strategy for how he approached each interview. And uh, you had to kind of figure out how to not get, you know, bulldozed by him. But um, you're a good interviewer. Uh, so probably the, yeah, I'd put him there for sure. That's great. His name is Michael Maslansky. My name is Merrill Dubrow. You've been listening to the On The Mark podcast. Have a great day, everyone. 